Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi there, my name is Zach Twomley. You're a history friend, or at least you're about to be, because you're about to listen to When Diplomacy Fails, more specifically the Versailles Anniversary Project and our latest episode within that. The Versailles Anniversary Project, much like the treaty, which it is named after, was not made overnight. Researching this project has been probably the most fun I've ever had with any project, but it has also been an awful lot of work, consisting of pretty much 12-hour days of research, writing, recording, editing, all that kind of thing. It is very much a full-time job, even though it's supposed to be only my part-time job, but it is made possible, first and foremost, because 
I freaking love history and I love doing this and I love bringing it out to you guys in the detail and with the passion which I feel this era deserves. But secondly, I'm able to justify it to my friends and my wife and my family by saying, look, these people are supporting me on Patreon. So if you would like to support this podcast on Patreon, I get some pretty sweet rewards in return. Make sure you head over to patreon.com forward slash when diplomacy fails. For $2 a month, you can get these episodes ad-free and access the scripts for them too. For $5, you can get that, but also an hour of extra content, depending on which extra series we're doing at the time. Currently, 1956, looking at the Suez Crisis. So if that sounds interesting, head on over to Patreon and check that out. For the $6 tier, of course you get to create yourself a delegate and send him off to play the delegation game. It's a really fun game that is almost launching, which is incredible because time has really caught up. But make sure to listen to the episode before this to find out more about the delegation game in case you've been living under a podcast-shaped rock all this time and have never heard me talk about it. If you're just joining us today and you've never listened to When Diplomacy Fells before, you should know that this is the 22nd episode of this project. So if you are super lost... That's probably why. In any case, thanks so much for listening, for downloading, and for sharing all that When Diplomacy Fails has to offer with your fellow history friends. Without your guys' support, this podcast would not be the success that it is, but there's always room for more success. So do your bit by being fit, telling people, finding us on Facebook, on Twitter, on the blog, on the website, emailing me, or simply writing an iTunes review. All of it helps, guys, and it doesn't even cost you anything. But enough about all that. Without any further ado, let's do further. Three thousand miles from home, an American army is fighting for you. To the end. That the high ideals for which America stands may endure upon the earth. I earnestly entreat my countrymen to pause before they rush Hitler into this revolutionary change, which may well I know that it is hard for Americans to realize the magnitude of the war in which we are involved. France and Italy, between them, have made waste people to the treaty of Versailles and the whole field of international relationships is in perilous confusion. The affairs of the world can be set straight only by the firmest and most determined exhibition of the will to leave and make the right prevail. We're here because we're here, because we're here, because we're You're listening to the Versailles Anniversary Project, episode 22. 
Today is the 12th of January 2019 and on this day in history, 100 years ago, occurred the following events. When David Lloyd George hopped on a British destroyer to take him across the channel late in the afternoon of the 11th of January 1919, he embarked upon a journey which was to prove the most enduring of his political career, the most exhausting of all the political tests, and in many respects, the most rewarding for his nation. More than that though, Lloyd George was about to forge a partnership between two great leaders, which proved absolutely essential in what followed. It is often said that each man disagreed over this issue or that, or that bad tempers and impatience could occasionally rub one the wrong way. It was fortunate though that these men were capable of meeting and conversing with one another for the next six months. Something which really emerges from the story of the Paris Peace Conference is that rapport which was created between Woodrow Wilson, Lloyd George and George Clemenceau. It was by no means a perfect relationship, but this polite, occasionally warm three-way dance would forge the New World Order. All three men at least had something in common. They did not want to see a repeat of the Great War. So, let's see how they got on with this mission, as I take you to the 12th of January. Given House's propensity for exaggeration, it is almost surprising that he merely points to trouble with my kidneys as the reason for the sudden illness, which effectively incapacitated him from the 9th to the 21st of January. Thus, he was unavailable to meet with David Lloyd George or his entourage, except from his sickbed. House's kidney problems were almost certainly aggravated by the intense level of work which his president placed upon him. As if anticipating his later absence, shortly before his disappearance from the proceedings, on the 8th of January, after a very eventful day where he was run ragged, House wrote, I do not know how I am going to get through the many weeks ahead if matters are crowded upon me as they have been during the last few days. The other commissioners are willing to help, but I am sorry to say they are in fact a hindrance. So much time is taken up with them of a perfectly useless nature. The President seems to have no intention of using them effectively. It is the story of Washington over again. We settle matters between the two of us, and he seems to consider that sufficient without even notifying the others. I feel embarrassed every day when I am with them. Thankfully for his delegation, Lloyd George was a good deal better at organising and managing his commissioners than the President, and the likes of Harold Nicholson could reasonably expect that their workload would not be as total as houses had been although Nicholson was soon to be disappointed in this regard. Nicholson remains perhaps our best eyewitness for the British delegation, and his unsurpassed diary, serving as the second half of his memoirs called Peacemaking 1919, which we've mentioned a few times, is an invaluable tool for the historian and enthusiast alike. It was on the 3rd of January that Nicholson, a senior foreign office clerk, arrived at the platform of Charing Cross Station in London, which whisked him then onwards to the boat that brought the delegation across the Channel. On the train to Paris, Nicholson recalled how an Italian delegation member insisted on buying him dinner, stating, My first post-war meal in France shall be at the expense of Italy. The Italian then immediately talked of the 1915 Treaty of London, which he viewed as the equilibrium of the Mediterranean. 
Evidently, this Italian delegate was concerned that Britain and France might abandon their earlier pledges to Italy. As the events of the Paris Peace Conference were to show, this Italian delegate was right to fear. It is difficult to piece together where Nicholson's lodgings were. He had arrived late after all, at least in comparison to the other British delegates and officials who had been streaming in since late November. Certainly it seems likely that Nicholson had a room reserved for him in the Hotel Majestic, though he does remark on his office at the Hotel Astoria, remember the British locations for living and working quarters were separated in Paris. Nicholson said that it was high up on the fifth floor with a view of the Arc de Triomphe, the smell of Lysol and iodoform with bare boards. It has just been evacuated by the Japanese who used it as a hospital. Nicholson's sensitive nose for the cleaning and disinfectant products of the time notwithstanding, his initial impressions of the organisation and equipment of his peers were positive. In the first few days after his arrival, Nicholson met with several of his counterparts in the delegations, commenting on their quality maps on good grasp of topics as dense and distant as Albania. Nicholson also provides useful running commentaries on other British officials who later occasionally wander into his narrative one of whom, Air Crow, he met on the 7th of January. Air Crow was an important figure in the British Foreign Office. By 1919, he held the position of Assistant Undersecretary for Foreign Affairs, the equivalent of the third in command at the Foreign Office. Crow had risen to prominence in 1907 with his Memorandum on the Present State of British Relations with France and Germany, a memo which underlined the dangers that Germany posed to Britain and identified France as Britain's most suitable ally. Sir Edward Grey, who was Foreign Secretary at the time, recommended Crow's memo and ensured it was circulated around the Foreign Office, increasing Crow's profile, but the two men never saw eye to eye. The name Air Crow should be familiar to anyone investigating the lead-up to the First World War. Crow provided a loud and bellicose attitude towards Germany right up to 1914, and his 1907 memo was often marked as a convenient watershed moment when Germany began to loom large as the villain in the British story, though the reality as we have seen is more complicated than that. Crow was born in Leipzig and had a German mother. It was said that when he was angry, Crow's German accent broke through his English. He was often criticised in the press for his German heritage by the Conservatives, yet in spite of his German mother, Crow cleaved to his English father and seemed to make up for his German connection by maintaining a considerable hostility to the place of his birth. Hostility towards the defeated, Crow may have had, but he was also a realist at heart, and when he met with Nicholson, the latter recorded his concerns. He, Crow, is realistic, wants facts, not ideas, however beautiful, talks about disarmament, about the League, is it to have an armed force? If so, what, and who commands? What about its permanent staff? What about the smaller powers? Did they enter on a basis of equality? That would be most unreal. Yet if not equal, how are they to be protected? Compulsory arbitration? What about national honour and interests? These were all reasonable questions and concerns for a British official to have. That they were recorded demonstrates that Nicholson took them seriously, as would his peers in the Foreign Office. Nicholson began his journey to Paris believing that it was possible to remake the world, to redefine conflict, to adopt the vision which Woodrow Wilson had of the League of Nations. He would leave Paris a sceptic, and his cynicism shines through the bulk of his memoir as the exhaustion and the impossible tasks pile up. 
Aircrow was also unearthing something of the vagueness of the League idea in the above quote, and he was by no means the first to do so. Nicholson at this point was quite taken with Crow, and he clearly looked up to his expertise, remarking on the 10th of January that it was a joy to be working under someone so acute and precise. Nicholson records several lunches with Crow, and there was a palpable sense of preparing the way for the arrival of the Prime Minister, who was expected in Paris on this day 100 years ago. The arrival of Lloyd George would represent the first opportunity for the three main leaders to meet before the conference opened officially on the 18th of January. Remember, at this point, there was little sense that all involved would be here until the end of June. These conversations were intended to serve as the basis for arrangements, which would be hammered out at a later point. There would be very few specifics, and mostly broad things would be agreed to. But to ensure no interference, the Germans were at this point not invited. We have examined already Nicholson's stance on this. The explanation that the Germans were not invited because it was not thought that they would be needed seems, in my mind anyway, genuine, especially when we consider the trajectory of the Paris Peace Conference over the next few months. It would have been a different story altogether if the Big Three had sat down and immediately began hammering out details and treaties, but this was not what happened. Instead, for the next six months, everything would appear to be in flux, and everything would also depend upon the working relationship of the five powers invited to sit on the Council of Ten or Supreme Council, which featured the leaders of Britain, France, Italy, Japan and the United States, accompanied by their foreign secretaries. Examining the journey which these men went on is a formidable task, and it will inform the structure of this project for the next six months. We are supported in our task by Nicholson's diary, Houses and Memoirs, and an invaluable record of the minutes of the different groups that met. First of all, the Council of Ten from the 12th of January to 14th of February, until then Woodrow Wilson returned to the United States, and a new chapter in the Paris Peace Conference began. To give you an idea of the kind of detail that one needs to sort through, this document dealing with the minutes of meetings from the 12th of January to the 14th of February runs to 573 pages. It will inform our perspective and give us a great foundation from which we can make judgments and assessments though, not to mention the fact that even having something akin to a schedule for the next month is so useful. I should say that this document is freely available online and I'll provide a link in the description as well as in the bibliography for those that want to leaf through some light reading before bed. In any case, with that covered, the actual purpose of this episode looms into view. The arrival of David Lloyd George on this day 100 years ago on the 12th of January 1919. David Lloyd George was the younger of the big three, and consequently he had the most energy and patience when it came to the stickier and mind-numbing portions of the conference. One had to be possessing of these qualities to endure what Lloyd George had endured over the last four years, and come out on top, literally. We learned in Lloyd George's profile episode that the wily Welshman used his political acumen to test which way the wind was blowing, and effectively abandoned the Liberal Party which had made him for the Conservative coalition which had so long supported him. This opportunism made him few friends in old liberal circles, but it granted him a great deal of power. Lord Northcliffe, the newspaper magnate who had strapped a rocket to Lloyd George over the munitions scandal, and then the grab for the premiership, 
was now a fierce and paranoid enemy. Herbert Asquith and the liberal old guard were bitterly resentful and eager to find any chance to snipe at the usurper's position. In response, Lloyd George leaned more heavily on his conservative base and ingratiated himself towards its leader, Bonner Law. The experience only served to sharpen his political instincts and focus his mind. His listening and conversational skills had not diminished. In fact, the war had improved them. Lloyd George possessed the remarkable ability to push different issues out of his head and focus on the matter in front of him. One of the most admirable traits of Lloyd George's character, remarked Winston Churchill, was his complete freedom of the height of his power, responsibility and good fortune from anything in the nature of pomposity or superior airs. He was always natural and simple. He was always the same to those who knew him well, ready to argue any point, to listen to disagreeable facts, even when controversially presented. Lloyd George was a masterful speaker, and a master at planning his speeches to make use of inflection, humour and statistics to make his points. Where Woodrow Wilson spoke, often with a condescending or preachy air, and George Clemenceau made use of straightforward, biting clarity and bits of sarcasm, not to mention the benefits of being bilingual, Lloyd George appeared to glide through debates in front of hundreds of people, never intimidated, never stuttering, never losing his nerve. I pause, Lloyd George once said to a friend that asked about his speaking technique. Then I reach out my hand to the people and draw them to me. Like children, they seem then. Like little children. Lloyd George wasn't dealing with little children at Paris, of course. He was dealing with the most powerful men in the world. Yet his approach did not change, and his charm rarely faltered, to the extent that arguably his record of the Big Three can be said to have been the most successful. Considering the fact that Lloyd George was able to tread the middle ground between French revanchism and Wilsonian idealism, this may not be surprising. But actually, as we'll see, the very fact that we pigeonhole Lloyd George into this grey area of not wanting all that much from the Paris Peace Conference represented a victory for him. The wily Welshman always wanted something, and the political light bulb in his head was never completely switched off no matter who he happened to be eating, sitting, or walking with, or talking to. There is a preliminary, though unofficial, meeting of the plenipotentiaries to discuss procedure. This is their first meeting. This was how Nicholson concluded his diary entry for the 12th of January, having recorded Lloyd George's arrival very late the previous night. The next day, Nicholson gave a similarly unremarkable detail. First official meeting of the conference, though they do not call themselves that, they meet as the Supreme War Council. The first avowed meeting is not to be until Saturday next, he wrote. Such a bland entry said nothing of the significance of the moment. While still meeting under the aegis of the Supreme War Council, remember the body which had hammered out the armistice two months before, it was apparent that a great deal more weight had just been invested into that old body, and it was soon to be usurped in importance. Nicholson's account evidently reveals little about the first meeting between what will become the Big Three, because, well, he wasn't present in the room. So what else can we glean from the event? This provides us with the opportunity to consult the minutes, that document that we mentioned earlier. At 2pm in the Quai d'Orsay, or French Foreign Office building, 100 years ago, 
This Supreme War Council sat down for the first time with this new injection of important people. The French party included Clemenceau, Ferdinand Foch and the French foreign minister Stephen Pichon. The Italians had their premier Orlando and foreign minister Sonino. The Americans had President Wilson, Secretary of State Lansing, while the British had Lloyd George, Balfour, Sir Mars Hankey and Sir Henry Wilson. There was even enough spread of the military and civilian leaders and the French had by far the largest party, whereas at this point the British, Italians and Americans only had four men each. Lloyd George was under the impression that all were present to discuss preliminaries, to make great plans for the schedule or arrange to address the burning questions on specific days. He became somewhat irritated when the meeting went quickly into the weeds. In less than an hour, those present managed to talk about Germany's execution of Allied prisoners, what to do with Russian prisoners in German care, how involved to become in the Russian Civil War, where Poland should fit into the schedule, what to do about German submarines that remained under construction, where technical advisors should be fitted into the process, and how many each country would be allowed to have. These questions were too detailed for Lloyd George, who expressed concern that he had not been aware such technical questions would be under discussion. Would it not be better, the Prime Minister asked, to resume the meeting under the banner of the Supreme War Council and discuss the actual path which the preliminary conference should take, rather than getting lost in so many weeds? Clemenceau agreed, and all took a brief break before resuming at 4pm that day. Resuming at 4pm, the question of delegates and how many each power was permitted to have was brought up and addressed. This was arguably the most important thing to clarify first because it would have a profound impact on how the conference progressed. Too many delegates would fill the room and delay decisions, while too few would offend some powers and give inadequate representation. The Dominions posed a problem for Woodrow Wilson, who quarrelled somewhat with Lloyd George over their status. To outside observers, the President said, the Dominions appeared similar in form to the British, and thus a load of delegates granted to the Dominions would be perceived as unfair by those outside of the British writ. Would it not make more sense, Wilson asked, for the British delegation to be changed up with Dominion plenipotentiaries, depending on which Dominions' interests were being addressed? Not so, said Lloyd George. The Dominions and the British, despite their connections, had very different views on the world and were very much influenced by geography and their different histories. Thus, the Dominions and India should get the same number of delegates as the smaller powers, which is to say they would all get two. When Woodrow Wilson pointed out that this would make it seem like the great powers were running the show, Lloyd George pointed out that they had, after all, won the war. If Britain received just five delegates, as each of the major powers did, then filling her delegation with Dominion delegates would remove the voice of Britain proper. The technical disagreements like these say something about the kind of difficulties which were to be faced at such a stacked conference. Wilson and Lloyd George evidently had different opinions, even on something as slight as how well the British and its dominions got on. To Wilson, the British and dominions were at least friends and would be expected to vote together, but to Lloyd George, the likes of Australia had demonstrated its independent interest through active participation and sacrifice. Just because the President did not agree could not hide the fact that Australians deserve representation independent from Britain. 
In any case, Lloyd George remarked, there would be no voting in the process that followed, only deliberation and majority consensus. A nice idea which the six-month journey through the Paris Peace Conference would put under strain. Clemenceau agreed with the Prime Minister, to which Wilson brought up the actions of the smaller Allied powers like Romania and Serbia, confessing in the process his special sympathy for them. Why not give more representatives to powers that would be consulted more often, Lloyd George suggested. This would bypass hurt pride and make more practical sense. Should the Dominions be included when talking about Europe then? Wilson asked. Since what did Canada or Australia care about redrawing European borders? Well, of course they should be included, said Lloyd George. Look at how many men had been lost by these Dominions in those theatres. And so it went on. A compromise of sorts was arrived at, but first, the number of delegates for each power was confirmed. A process we do not have the time or mental energy to go through now, though it is worth noting some strange decisions. Brazil, for instance, was allocated two delegates, while Portugal received only one. This despite the fact that Portugal contributed several thousand men to the Western Front, and Brazil only played a minor role in this regard. Portugal was only allowed one delegate, similar to the Kingdom of Siam. Did this mean that Portugal's contribution was held in equally apparently low regard to that client Kingdom of Britain? Portugal had stayed in the war and had never removed herself from the war or broken any treaties with the Allies as a result. Romania, on the other hand, had abandoned the Allied war effort, yet she was getting two delegates because Wilson felt strongly about the subject. It didn't make sense, and the decisions made regarding delegates were, to quote my friend Sean, consistent in their inconsistency. Before long, this 4pm meeting intended to discuss procedure and the preliminary agenda ran itself into the weeds the same way as the earlier 2pm meeting. The question of Montenegro, of all things, was brought up, and whether she should be allowed to send delegates when it was noted that Serbia's monarchy had claimed that tiny country and that that country also desired to unite with Serbia. If the Serbian monarch was truthful and Montenegro really did desire to be annexed into this greater Serbia, then why did the king of Montenegro repudiate this idea and protest loudly to the French and his allies about the country's plight? Wilson took up the Montenegro cause, Serbia's actions, the president claimed, violated the self-determination principle. Indeed, Serbia had no business invading the tiny mountainous country and her claims on it should be ignored. Montenegro would receive permission to send an independent delegate of its own, even though technically, according to the de facto circumstances of the Balkans, Montenegro no longer existed as an independent kingdom. Interestingly, and a bad sign of things to come, Each of the leaders in turn declared their unfortunate ignorance of the Balkans at this time, but it was insisted that Montenegro should not be left out in the cold. The Italians, unsurprisingly, exclaimed that Serbia had acted unreasonably and that it was a very bad beginning to the new regime to follow the war. This reaction by the Italians reminds us that Italian statesmen had been appalled by the sudden emergence of a Yugoslav state on her doorstep in a place where there was meant to be a power vacuum following the collapse of Austria-Hungary and Italian influence was supposed to spread. This uneasiness and hostility towards Yugoslavia and the anxiousness in the background of Italian minds that the 1915 Treaty of London would not be respected after all 
informed much of the Italians' behaviour, but at this early stage Orlando and his foreign minister were optimistic and largely unaware that Wilson planned to scupper the entire reason Italy had entered the war in the first place. After a short break, the meeting was resumed, and evidently all were content to move on from the Balkans and talk about more pressing matters instead, namely the renewal of the armistice with Germany. Part of the terms of the armistice was that it would be renewed every month. The armistice technically expired on the 18th of January, so it had to be renewed before that date, or else, theoretically, the war would be back on. Nobody wanted that, so it was necessary to discuss what questions affected a smooth renewal of the armistice on the previous terms. Clemenceau claimed that he did not have a list of those questions, but he noted that fresh demands should be placed on Germany's coal and coking industries, considering the, now, sorry state of the French equivalents. The question was effectively postponed to the following morning, when recommendations would be presented to the Supreme War Council. Next on the list was the question of Russia. Should she be allowed representation at the conference, and if so, which government should fulfil this role, the Whites or the Reds? Bolshevism remained a dirty word in Paris, and no one was so open-minded as to allow Lenin to send a representative of his own. As we will see later though, the Allies were also not content merely to sever all communications with the Bolsheviks. Lloyd George perhaps put the situation best when he noted that this had to be dealt with one way or another, because at present the Allies had got themselves in a fix for the reason that they had no definite policy in Russia. They ought to decide whether to withdraw their troops or to reinforce them. Unless reinforced, they were of no use whatsoever. He had nothing to say against other Russian delegates. We were told they represented every shade of opinion. As a matter of fact, they represented every opinion except the prevalent Bolshevik opinion in Russia. Ignorant though he may have been about a great deal of information, Lloyd George was essentially correct about this. Sympathetic calls for those Russian exiles to be listened to or accorded official status as the Russian government were meaningless, because until the strongest government Russia had, the Bolshevik one, was either defeated or recognised, there could be no true Russian representation at Paris. Lloyd George then elaborated further on the Russian question, demonstrating some of his pragmatism in the process, as the minutes detail. The peasants accepted Bolshevism for the same reason as the peasants had accepted it in the French Revolution, namely that it gave them land. The Bolsheviks were the de facto government. We had formerly recognised the Tsar's government, although at the same time we knew it to be absolutely rotten. One reason had been that it was the de facto government. We recognised the white governments, although none of them were good, but we refused to recognise the Bolsheviks. To say that we ourselves should pick the representatives of a great people was contrary to every principle for which we had fought. It was possible that the Bolsheviks did not represent Russia, but certainly the Russian emigres did not. The British government made exactly the same mistake when they said that the emigres represented France. This led them to a war against Napoleon which lasted 25 years. With that, it was agreed that while the Russian emigres would be listened to, they would not serve as the official delegation. Russia, it was explained, would have no official representation at the conference. All then launched into a discussion about procedure. Wilson was concerned that the conference would give off the impression that it was being run by the great powers, while the smaller powers had an equal interest in many of the key questions. Lloyd George noted this, but he insisted that the great powers did have comparatively 
greater interests and stakes owing to their size and influence. Fair enough, said Woodrow Wilson, but the conference idea should be put aside since conferences restricted freedom of action and made certain powers feel smaller than others. Why not structure the next few months as informal conversations instead, with some held in private between the different delegations, with the main decisions reached presented before the Supreme Council? Well, Clemenceau argued that a structured conference was what was expected, and he added that the public opinion factor should be considered, that any private conversations would also go against the idea that the conference was supposed to contain open covenants openly arrived at. Clemenceau anticipated a three-step process. First, the gathered powers would have conversations amongst themselves where non-binding decisions would be made. Second, the Allied powers and the Allied powers only would gather for a formal conference. And finally, once this conference had determined the pressing questions, the actual Peace Congress would gather and the other central powers would be allowed to attend. This was agreed to on the 12th of January 1919 and demonstrates the initial plans of those at Paris at the time. Evidently, in other words, no one expected to still be there by late June. Indeed, nobody expected this preliminary stage to morph into the actual peace conference. Far from a conference, most seemed to have believed that the real decisions would be rubber-stamped at a final congress. It would only be once all involved accepted that the Allied gathering was taking far too long to make anything happen that the finality of the congress was shoehorned into the initial conference, if that makes sense, with the infamous result being that Germany and her central powers allies were ignored until the moment came to dictate the terms of the peace to them. Technical advisers were then discussed for the final time. It was decided that these experts in the field should sit behind the actual delegates during the gatherings of the Supreme Council, and that they would not be counted as actual delegates. They would essentially speak only when spoken to, and when their knowledge on a given subject was required. Imagining the Paris Peace Conference as a body, or at the very least, like a head, we can imagine the delegates serving as the voice of the conference, and the technical advisors serving as the brain. Up until the gatherings changed in size and scope to a mere gathering of the big three, this hopeful formula was largely adopted. The VIPs would speak and confer with other delegates, gesturing to their experts when necessary. When considering the agenda for that day, suitable experts would be brought in to advise on the subjects at hand, with the view being that by cramming all these geniuses into the same room, it would surely be possible to arrive at some kind of acceptable solution. With that, the first unofficial gathering of the Supreme War Council, soon to be the Council of Ten, or the Allied Meeting for the Conference, which was definitely not a conference, or whatever the heck else they called it, well, the first day was over, anyway. It had been quite a day for all involved. Much had already been revealed about where one stood on questions as diverse as Serbia, and to what constituted a German submarine. Differences in opinion and abrasive personalities were already coming to the fore, too, and the whole thing hadn't even started yet. People were only now coming to grips with what exactly this thing was, and soon it would transpire that they were actually wrong. Those in Paris had a week to settle in. All would come to a head the following Saturday on the 18th of January 1919, when the peace conference officially opened its doors and all these decisions were borne out. There was more than enough time before that date to meet 
to talk, and to scheme. If the first day had been anything to go by, then not David Lloyd George, nor Woodrow Wilson, nor George Clemenceau would have much in the way of spare time for the foreseeable future. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.